Welcome to episode 23 of the How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. I'm your host, Emily White, and I'm so thrilled to have manager, professor, activist, entrepreneur, Amici Uzigwe as today's guest. Welcome, Amici. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Emily. It's a real pleasure to join you. Absolutely. So... As you know, there's a few things I want to talk to you about today. Um, I really could talk to you about your career for three hours, but we're not going to do that. Sorry to the listeners. Um, Share everybody that. (laughs) Well, check out Amici's bio and LinkedIn and all that good stuff because it's it's really remarkable. Um, But the first thing on your LinkedIn, I mean, I know you were doing some some film PA stuff as well around the same time, was with Amnesty International. So take me back to... Take me back to the beginning of your career and, and how you got into all this. Whoa, throwback Thursdays in the house, <laughs> absolutely. Well, that's a long time ago, but um, it's, it's actually a really good place to start because that experience for me uh, had such a big impact on my, my young life coming out of college. Um, and it served as catalyst for so much for me, just mentally and spiritually and just aspirationally. Um, that, you know, it's, it's one of the most important moments of my life. So how that came about was, was not, <laughs> was not planned. I actually moved to New York city the day after I graduated from the university of Michigan. You know, I, I, I fell in love with this place. I'd come here for spring break, but my friends were going to like the Caribbean. Amazing. My dad is a professor and, and worked for the UN and as an author would, you know, taken me here a few times when I was younger and I just loved it. So I'm like, I'm going back to the city. Like, this is where I'm going to end up. I just knew it. So I, I came here the day after I graduated with not actually zero plan, but some really awesome friends. And we had a blast for like six months. And uh, one day I'm hanging out with a very good friend from school and her parents who were from the city. And her mom was a very special woman, um, you know, having a glass of, you know, a bottle of wine. And she looks at me and says, you know what? You're not ready for New York. You're just not ready, sweetie. So tomorrow I want you to, you know, meet my friend, her daughter at her job. And she's like, you're going to have a train ticket going back to Michigan. Wow. And then come back when you're ready. Because she knew, I mean, she did it out of love. She knew that I wasn't focused. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was sort of a slap in the face, but a wake-up call slap in the face. Not like I didn't feel insulted. I felt like, well, she actually gives a damn about me. So I did it. I packed my bags, and I, I met up with my friend. She gave me a train ticket. I went back to Michigan. I rode on the same uh, tra- Amtrak car with Dr. Kevorkian, which I wasn't wow. sure if we, that was an omen. <laughs> totally. <laughs> And I went back with my tail between my legs to a degree to Ann Arbor where I, you know, I grew up and I went to the University of Michigan and I'm like, you know, oh, well, I got to figure out what I want to do. So I got a job at Borders Bookstore and Borders um, is where, you know, the famous bookstore um, chain that started in Ann Arbor. And I knew the family, but it's also one of the hardest jobs to get in the book business because you have to go through this two hour test. On books, and so I went for it, and, and, and I got the job, and that was a that was a great experience for me because I love books, and I love to read, and, and it was really cool way to uh, 
to uh, indulge in that part of me. But <laughs> about six months into it, I went to see the Richard Linklater film, Slackers. And in that film, um, there's a scene with a, at a bookstore with a really weird bookstore clerk who's in his specialty is the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. Turns out that was my section. <laughs> and I was like the JFK uh, uh, expert. And uh, that really bummed me out seeing that. It was like, oh God, I'm that guy. You right. Know, what have I done with my life? And I'm like, I've got to do something. So funny enough, like shortly after that, one of my best friends calls me and says, hey, do you want to come to Jamaica with me? He was working for Amnesty. He's like, they, they were signing me there and they say I can bring whoever I want. But you got to like pack your bags. And I'm like, hell yes. You know, <laughs> like, and my boss at Borders was like, you know, he, he'd been around the world. He, and I was going to Kingston. He's like, you know what Kingston, Jamaica's like, right? Are you sure you want to like, go there? Um, and I had no fear about it. I mean, I lived in Africa for, for years as a child and before that. So for me, like those sort of exotic or, you know, the, the, those, those things aren't, don't scare me because I'm very accustomed to those environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went and it was a mind blowing, game changing, life altering experience on a number of levels, not just the work we were doing in the human rights space. We were working with a very, the only human rights organization on the, on the island called the Jamaican Council for Human Rights. Bob Marley had left them a uh, million dollars via amnesty. Um, and so that's how we connected with them, taking depositions from people. People would come from all over the island, mostly poor people, to give depositions on police brutality and all sorts of horrible things that were being perpetrated upon them by the police and just the institutions at large. A lot of them didn't know they had rights. So we would go to the parishes and, and, and the pamphlets and explain to them that they actually had rights. And they, you know, and uh, worked in the prisons there. Um, we, we got a guy out who'd been in prison for 37 years without being charged with a crime because they work under the British penal system and it's, it's something called Her Majesty's Pleasure so they can incarcerate you as a teenager and never actually charge you. So by the time we got him out, you know, his life had already been shattered and he was mentally ill and all of that. It was really heartbreaking in that sense. But the other work we got to do was really invigorating. And on the weekends, we got to shoot um, endangered flora and fauna for the Nature Conservancy. That was our side gig. So we got to travel around, and we met a bunch of amazing people. And then uh, we were asked to write a a paper. And she was really happy with us, and we asked to write a paper for one of their international conferences about our work, which we did. And it was pretty scathing report in terms of how we viewed Amnesty's role. And so they immediately pulled us from our assignment mm-hmm. and sent us back to D.C. I went, and I went right on to New York City with no money in my pocket, but a totally different mindset. Yeah. And from there, I got into the film business. Like, I just wanted to get, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. Did um, you, sorry to interrupt, did you present yourself to your friend's mom after Jamaica and be like, okay, am I, am I ready? Am I good? Well, she was really happy to see me come back, you cool. know, and she, she's tough once if she kept the bar high. 
But her daughter was really dear friend and was such a great friend for me. In fact, she let me stay with her for months when I got back from Jamaica wow. and, and let me get my, my, my feet on the ground. But it, uh, it was, uh, it was wild, but actually I missed a part when I moved to New York. My first roommate was Lucy Liu, the actress. We were friends from college and she was no getting her acting career, her acting career started. And and got me a job. Her brother got me a job at a, a, a chicken wing place called Pluck You. I'm not sure if it's still around. But it just Perfect. started. His friend, his friends at Columbia University started it. So me and my best friend, who was her boyfriend, we were delivery boys with our double degrees from the University of Michigan. And, you know, <laughs> we were driving around Washington Square Park delivering chicken wings, and that was pretty dispiriting. But you know, that was another formative experience was just just through that and through lucy and it's amazing how the people you meet when you're 22 right what kind yes. of impact they can have over the course of your life you know and also uh, you know as much as that you know might have been a frustrating job it's a great way to get to know the city 100 percent, 100 percent, and learn the rules you know and get yep. your get your city game up right? yeah. <laughs> it's tough to be a delivery person you got it you know you got a bad call. and uh but that well you know so when i ended up back here and getting into film through a friend of mine at the university of michigan who was in the film business got me some early gigs and i lived down the street lucy and i lived down the street in tribeca from the tribe from the tribeca film center which robert de niro had just started and he had and in that film center, the Black Filmmakers Foundation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. He had, you know, that he had given them space, which at that time was run by Reginald and Warrington Unlin, who did House Party, other movies. So I went and I interned there. And through that, I met a bunch of people. I eventually got a... You know, and I had been working in a commercial film business on, you know, like movies, commercials and all that good stuff, thinking I wanted to really be a filmmaker. And I got a, a gig with Spike Lee, my first assistant directing and uh, on a short film, not on one of his actual real movies, no. short film, but that was good enough for me. And I was really excited about being a filmmaker. And on the weekends, I would shoot videos for underground acts or indie acts, like kind of anyone who wanted a video. Um, that I liked and uh, my partners and I were like if, and we were meeting all these amazing artists who didn't have management and we wanted to be filmmakers and we're like well if we manage them we'll get to shoot all their videos that was wow. kind of our right ridiculous like rationale for getting into that world and shooting a video for this rap group from Brooklyn uh, really hardcore underground rap group and they asked me during the course of filming, they were like, you sound pretty smart. Would you mind looking at a record deal? Because they hadn't signed it yet. Yeah. And I, you know, I was a philosophy and literature major in, in college. So the one thing my degree certainly prepared me for was reading things. And yeah. Stuff. And 
So I'm like, sure, why not? So checked it out. And they're like, will you meet with the label? And I'm like, sure, why the hell not? You know, we only live once. Like, sure, set up a meeting in the West Village at some diner. I show up, I look around, and the only person who looks like they could be from not music business related is like this 19-year-old kid, white kid, sitting in a booth. And uh, turns out that's the record label. It turns out that young man's name was LP. He was in a group called Company Flow and had started his own label and wanted to sign this act. So I sit down with him. We hit it off. You know, my partners and I had built a recording studio down in Wall Street. Again, thinking if we get people in here, they'll let us shoot their videos. And we made it free. And he and we had this group who were shooting the video for coming down to record. And so LP and his group members from Company Flow would come down and check them out. I got to know this group one night. And then they started recording there too. They had put out a really uh, a, a, an EP on vinyl that exploded on the underground and did like thirty thousand units. Huh. And so one night after they were recording, I think we went to McDonald's or something, just kicking it. They're like, "Hey, we need a manager. What do you think?" And uh, I basically just like, "Fine, you know, great." <laughs> so I didn't know what I was doing, but decided to do it with them. And they ended up being one of the most important and influential underground rap groups in the last probably 30 years. Incredible. And, uh, and then they, you know, Rockets Records came along, who at that point was in sort of a, a nothing label, no disrespect. You know, James Murdoch had started it with some friends and it wasn't really going anywhere. And he was sort of moving on. And, and they needed a real legitimate act. Right. Um, in hip hop, and so we were able to basically write our own record deal. Um, LP had interned from for a guy named William Krasilovsky, who wrote the real definitive book of music law called This Business of Music mm-hmm. when he was a teenager. And Mr. Krasilovsky told us, like, here's the, the fairest deal you could do, which is a 50 50 net profit split. Great. And we proposed that. They said yes. We went ahead and finished the album. It was a big success. Um, we got to tour all over the world. You know, most staff and Tali Kweli and all those guys came after Company Flow. Um, and that's really, that was the beginning of my journey in turning into management. And, and so shortly after that, I started working with, actually, we ended up having six major label acts in the first couple of years of starting a management company. Mm-hmm. But those acts, for me, and dealing with the major label system, I really was the turnoff. It wasn't mm-hmm. the acts. I loved them. But what it became quickly apparent how, that the game changes in dramatic ways, right? And not always in good ways, but ways that feel good, at least. Mm-hmm. And for, at the same time, I had these major label acts where we, my partners and I, I was developing all these underground apps due to company flow blowing up and, and meeting this whole ocean of incredible underground artists, mainly on the urban side. And then they all started getting signed. Rick Rubin signed Saul Williams, Antipop Consortium, Mike Willie all started getting signed. Yeah. And, but that, and that was the stuff I really loved. 
personally, like that I was passionate about. I wasn't interested in making pop pop songs at right. 20, however years old. I, I love Saul. Way. He's so amazing. Yeah. And so he, you know, he had just won Sundance, his film that he was a star of, and we did the deal with Rick, and he had a book deal, and all this amazing stuff happening. And then Radiohead took anti-pop consortium out on tour, right? And the mm-hmm. company flow was just killing it. And it was like, this is awesome. And then it just got to a point. Um, well, it's a cautionary tale, um, I guess. My, my partners at the time, you know, I was the guy who just trusted everyone. And I never really went in there. I'm like, I know what I do well. I'm not the business guy. I never fancied myself a business guy. I worked with the creatives. And um, so I didn't really pay attention to what they what was going on. And I was bringing in most of the cash. And, you know, suffice it to say, things weren't really being handled the right way. And money... You know, they gave this some Wall Street guy a big chunk of our money, and they found yeah. this guy's dad in the East Village from a heroin overdose oh like three weeks okay. later, and like blew all our cash. And it was just, you know, it's one of those like, well, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Right. So, I moved on, and I kept doing my thing. And LP, you know, Company Flow broke up, and we started a label called He and I called Definitive Chucks together. And, you know, brought out artists like RT, uh, RJD2 and Aesop Rock and, you know, others to the world. It had an incredible run. Sold a ton of records and made really classic albums. Mm-hmm. The Cannibal Ox album is one of my favorite rap albums of all time. And LP produced that. It's a certified underground classic. And so that was amazing experience. And through that experience... I started to understand business because I never, like I said, I never really fancied myself a business person, but I had learned so much on the way. Um, just by being mainly with company flow, we, we learned everything together. You know, we right. all the successes. I mean, we're traveling and I mean, it was, I was so naive when we were going on tour to Europe for the first time, because at that point, no underground rap, rap groups were going to Europe. Wow. You know, no one had been to Europe and we had this opportunity to go. And as we're trying to figure out the budget, which is very slim, they're like, all right, well, if you're going to be the tour manager, tour managers get 10%. Oh, wow. You know? And so I agreed to do it for 10%, only for 10% instead of thinking, well, I am the manager too, so I should actually be getting 30%. That's right. You know? <laughs> but at that point, we just wanted to go. Yeah. It just didn't matter. It's like, let's just right. get the hell over there. And and it was amazing. It was remarkable. I made connections and relationships that some of that we still have to this day. You know? Like I'm really sure. game changing. In fact, our promoter in Scotland, I think it was Scotland, or somewhere in the no, maybe Manchester. Um, definitely Manchester. Um it was awesome. Malcolm's really great experience. And then I th- this was in 1997 or 1998. Fast forward to 2017, I think, or 16, Banksy, the artist, invites the guys to play Dismal Land. This wow. amazing, mind-blowing uh, experience he put on in the UK. And it really was incredible. And, and the guy, the production manager, was Malcolm, the same guy. 
are same promoters. I love it. You know what I mean? Like those things totally. happen to, to me and to us all the time. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, so that, that led me, you know, after uh, Elle and I started the label and it was a great run and then the digital revolution hit. And we actually prepared for it. We were the first music website. We were doing downloads in 2006. And we were the first music website on the planet where you could buy both physical and digital merchandise or products in the same shopping cart. So like great. the problem that, you know, some guy I found on a chat room, some kid <laughs> in, in Oregon, like everyone was telling us it was impossible or it would cost all the hundred thousand dollars. And we're like, what? Right. So literally like some young guy in Oregon. It's like, I can do that. I love it. And uh, it was pretty awesome. So, and we did our first desktop app in 2003. So we were always tech forward, you know, we're just fascinated by it. And then the digital rev, we thought we were prepared, but no one was. Right. You know, and we went from a label that was generating, you know, several million dollars a year to one to the following year doing less than seven figures. Wow. And, you know, it's all a lot of money for a small company, but that that much of a drop off. Of course. Of, is devastating. Yeah. And, uh, and we had to shut it down, you know, and when we shut it down, we had liabilities to our, our artists or our friends mm-hmm. of like $400,000. Wow. And this is when I married, I've got two kids. In fact, my, my marriage was falling apart at that point, right? Like everything was going wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, oh, to make it worse, actually, a, a few years before that, as LP and I were trying to figure out, as we were sensing, we needed to make this business more efficient, right? Because on these, we did these 50-50 splits with everyone. And you know... That's great, but your overhead has to come out of your 50 as the label. And as you grow and you have more employees and da-da-da, that 50 gets smaller and smaller. That's right. So we were trying to think of ways to make it more equitable and have it be uh, you know, something that's more sustainable. So we had the idea of starting a label management company. Um, so we, we partnered up with a couple other guys. Well, I did. And... And my label became our client, as well as other labels like Wichita and Bella Union and BBE. And we were also managing artists like uh, LP and the Flaming Lips and the Wonder Band Art, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, history kind of repeats itself sometimes, you know, and it was a really cool model and it was working. But again, I was trusting and not verifying. Right. The only time you'll hear me quote Ronald Reagan <laughs> um, and again same thing same thing in the, fi- in the finances and you know a different set of circumstances but the end result was that folks were being funny with the money and right. doing really you know and doing things behind my back that were completely unacceptable uh, completely unacceptable and illegal right and at that point, my marriage is falling apart. You know, everything's going wrong. You know, my label's going under. Yeah. And I find out my quote-unquote friends are stealing. Ugh. And and so I just sort of like, I don't know, I thought my whole world was ending. 
Sure. And, um, and, uh, and LP as well, because the label fell apart. He didn't know what he was going to do. Right. And at that point, you know, I had, a, I had an old friend actually that we had met who became our distributor in France for our label, uh, a guy named Olivier Rosset. And we struck up a real friendship over the, you know, over the years. And he had gotten into tech. He had started a company that was like similar to SoundCloud, which is like in 2008. Right. And he asked me to consult. And I flew over to Geneva, Switzerland, where he was based, and, you know, went on a little retreat with him and his team. And it blew my mind. I saw the future. Yeah. You know? And we all really clicked, and then he asked me to come on board. They raised a bunch of money. Um, they had some really smart people. In fact, our CTO was the guy who came up with HTTP, the terminology. Wow. He worked for, worked for Tim Berners-Lee. Yeah. Worldwide Web Project. And uh, so I'm surrounded by people like this who are thinking in ways that I've never been around people like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Blowing my mind. I thought I was kind of tech savvy. <laughs> right. You know, because I had done an you know desktop app and we had done this, and I was like, no. Right. So I joined forces with them for a few years and ran their North American operations, and it was like getting my 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 graduate degree in tech for from a, a business, not from a tech side, right, but from a layman side, right. And I would I. I, I I learned what an API is and you know, how to build it, da, 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 all that stuff that mm-hmm. is like a foreign, foreign language. And that company didn't end up making it, you know, like a lot of startups don't, but did it made a lot of cool things happen. We were one of the first, in fact, where you could publish to your Twitter, your Tumblr, your Facebook site, like with the press of one button. That's one of the features that we probably right. So again, I learned so much and met a whole bunch of great music people. And, you know, I was the music guy, so I knew how to talk to music people. And I had learned how to talk to music people about tech. Usually the tech people would come in, as you know, and, and say, you know, assume music people are stupid and that we ruined everything and they're going to come and save the day. Sure. If we just use their tech. That's like deeply insulting when people approach you. <laughs> but I get it. I get why yeah, they would yeah, do that. I get that. it. Oh, same, yeah. same, same, same. I mean, but it's like uh, the Dale Carnegie book, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I don't know if you ever read that. I'm having my class at NYU read that. Nice. Because it's, uh, it's amazing. And it came in very handy for me a few years down path my journey when Again, and this is the life of a, of a manager or a music or, or, you know, those of us who are, who have no parachute or, or, or benefit packages for 401k. Totally. In the music business, you don't get that. I'm explaining that to my students now as well. Yep. Um, after I decided to leave this tech company, I thought everything must be fine. No, I'm going to be fine. You know, find another nice gig, da 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 da. I've got options. You know, meanwhile, I had split with my wife. I'm maintaining two places one in, you know, there in Manhattan, I'm in Brooklyn, um, private school, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, it's going to be great. I, I'm not worried about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I had a nice, you know, package. I did have a little bit of a package when I left this company, but it went fast. Yeah. And, and I had no, and nothing was. Nothing was happening for me. Like there was no opportunities. 
and and I decided to, you know, pack up again and move to my brother lives in suburban Philadelphia and I moved into his basement just so I could afford to keep my kids in school and for sure. Ex's rent on the upper west side and you know, it's incredibly yeah. humbling. Incredibly yeah. humbling. And because uh, I had done all these amazing things, at least I thought I did, you know. Totally. You, and, I mean, you had. You know, and, uh, and found, you know, I was the founding chairman of A2IM and, you know, awesome. Yep. Like, I'm going to be good. Like, I'm not too worried. But that wasn't the case. Because the music business was really, at that point, upside down. There wasn't a whole lot of money. There wasn't a whole lot of blue skies. And, uh, so I, I, you know, I sucked it up. I had to make a decision, and it was a hard and humbling and humiliating decision in some ways. But it was the best decision I could have made. And that year, a lot of great things happened, even though I didn't expect them to. Um, my best, one of my best friends is a filmmaker. He brought me on a project. I ended up writing it, and it became the TED my TED Talks, their 25th anniversary project that was shot wow. in Vancouver. And it won, a, you know, won an award in Ken Lyon. And we were doing, I know I was doing all this stuff for, wasn't making me much money, but creatively. Sure. It was amazing. And it's also the time when Run the Jewels got LP and Killer Mike got. That's great. And Run the Jewels was born. And I sort of, you know, helped birth it for my brother's face. And, and you know, thank the creator, things work. And, you know, I was able to, you know, get back on my feet pretty quickly. And, uh, and, 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 and really commit and could get, it was, it was all consuming RTJ at the beginning, right? It was such a, a wild time. And for those guys too, they didn't know what they were going to, they were at a crossroads. Right. Creator, like as artists, like they thought maybe that you know their ship had sailed. They didn't know each other when they met, mm-hmm. um, but they were at similar points in their careers, and it was a you know it was a magical combination when they did meet. And the rest is really history, and that 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 actually turbocharged us in so many levels as individuals, not just as them as artists in the group, but it empowered us in so many ways to do so many things we love that we're passionate about, whether it's Mike and his activism, um, whether it's their love for art in general. I mean, L and his activism, which is much more behind the scenes, but incredibly powerful. Um, and just get to do the things that we really are important to us as human beings. You know, it starts with the music, but it expands. You know, now we have the craft beer, we have the cannabis, we've got mm-hmm. the toys, we've got this. So we can also stay kids. You know, and say, you know, you know, in that way. And, and, and we've become a cottage industry and we've, we've learned to be pretty good business people. And, yes, you have. And, and, and they've become incredible artists and, and, and entertainers and, and, and they're, they're a joy to work with because they're so committed and so smart and so talented and all those things you love about, you, you know, when you have clients like that, it's a pleasure. Um, but they're, you know, they're also tough and demanding. And, and, and have high, you know, big, big dreams. Yep. So two guys who make who blew up in their at forty, mm-hmm. which is totally anomalous in this yeah. business. It's a uh, they realize 
how fortunate they are. And they're trying to make the most of it on all ways, whether it's being successful as artists or whether it's using their voices to, uh, to, uh, to impact things. I like to tell people, you know, they didn't win a Grammy this lot for their last album. You know, they were robbed or they didn't get nominated. Oh, wow. Um, That's shocking. But they, but they won history between Killer Mike's speech after the George Floyd, Floyd murder that went viral globally to LP being quoted by, you know, Congressperson Stacey Plaskett during the impeachment of Donald Trump from the Senate floor. She literally quoted a lyric from his song. Wow. And I'm like, I have Rachel Maddow, who I have TV on or something just randomly, and I see their picture, and then I hear them talking about on the jewels. And I'm during the impeachment, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same with Mike's speech, like, same thing. I have the TV on one Friday night, just sort of putting it around, and I hear Rachel Maddow say, Killer Mike at Atlanta, and I see, I look at the TV, and there he is. And I call up Will Bronson, my partner. I'm like, yo, do you know Mike's on TV? And he's like, I have no idea. He's like, what? And that's a moment that was incredible. If you saw it, like, it was so overwhelmingly powerful and poignant and human and spoke to uh, why he's important, why they're important mm-hmm. you know, to, to me, to us, and to, to many out there. Um, and that's for us. That's so reward to be a part of that, just to be a, a part of it, a, a witness to it, and a part of the team. To me, is immensely rewarding and gratifying. And uh, so they've been able to give us all a new lease of life and pay it back and pay it forward. Whether it's the charitable efforts, I mean, we've raised hundreds and hundreds, probably close to a million dollars now since uh, we dropped the meow the jewels. Album as a joke, which ended up raising we got raised forty thousand dollars for the families of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, and that led to hundreds of thousands more for the for the uh, National Lawyers Guild Mass Defense Fund, which incredible civil civil uh, people who are exercising their rights to civil disobedience and protest and get arrested and they don't have the means to get bail or to have lawyers. That's what this fund provides for. So we wanted to we wanted to help empower something that had real on the ground impact. Yeah. And uh, it's been you know it's been great. We we did a whole T-shirt campaign for. Uh, that's why I love my guys so much. You know, the Proud Boys had adopted a version of our logo. Oh wow! Which was really fucked up to us. Yeah, we awful. Disturbing, and we thought about all these things. We can sue them and this and that and you know and Al had a great idea he's like you know what now that's our logo we own that we define it <laughs> so right. we're going to do a series of t-shirts using different variations of their logo and we're going to raise a bunch of money for different charities all of which those guys probably despise like LGBTQ right. charity <laughs> immigration charity racial justice charity a pro-women's charity and that's, that's what right. we did and we raised a bunch of money for those organizations oh, and that's it. why i love that that's their response it's like we're not going to get into the dirt or the mud with you you know we're going to take a different approach right um, and uh it's one of the reasons i love what i do well i get to do that stuff 
And it brings it all together. You know, that's what I think is so fascinating about like one of your first experiences being with Amnesty International. It's like, look at what you're doing now, right? Yeah. And to tie it all together with Amnesty, this is completely coincidental. It just happened last week. I get a uh, an old friend of mine, actually a fraternity brother of mine from college, reaches out to me. Um, and turns out he's now an executive at Amnesty International. Love it. And he works on all their entertainment and arts and culture stuff. And he's a fan of RTJ. And we're working on a project in Latin America now called RTJ Quattro, where the guys, they're reimagining their last album, RTJ4, via the prism of Latin American artists. Rappers, producers, singers, etc. It's not really a remix album. It's like a, a reimagined album. And like the first of its kind. And we are talking about doing something special, you know, we, well, the guys wanted to wrap a charitable cause around this project as well. So we landed on child separation at the border, which mm-hmm. has led us to talking about doing a, either a performance or an art installation or both at the border. We did an art gallery show in Mexico last year. We've had a, a series called art to jewels, which is now the countries now. And, uh, and our craft beer, right? We did a beer in Mexico. It actually was the number one selling alcoholic beverage on Amazon Mexico, which blew our minds. Wow. But it's been a year-long campaign now, and we want to end it with this statement at the border. And Amnesty may come, may actually get involved in that. So talk about so full cool. circle. For me, it's... Uh, it makes it all worth it because the record business, as you know, isn't the most pleasant place to be often. Um, well, and you just describe that, you know, it's like, I think most people would look at your career and be blown away as they should be. But to hear, you know, that at your, what sound, sounded like really like your darkest moment, that's when, you know, the sun started to shine. I mean, it's just, your story yeah. is really a tale of resilience and then also, you know, your relationship with LP has been what, like yeah. 26 20, years or so? I mean, that's yeah, pretty yeah, unheard yeah, of yeah. in management. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, and we've never signed a contract. I do not advocate that at all. I told my class that, like, sign contracts, right? But he and I never did. And we just had an unspoken understanding that we're in this together. Yeah. We rise and fall together. And if I don't do my job, I'm gone. And if he doesn't do his job, I'm gone. Right. You know. But, there, sorry but to interrupt. I there, love him. Yeah, but there is a spoken understanding, right? Because you get paid something and you don't need to share what that yeah. is. You know, like. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, of I just, course. Of course. Not. Yeah. Yes. Like, I just want to clarify, because we had Randy Nichols on in the previous episode, um, also talking about management. He doesn't have contracts with his artists. He's worked with Under Oath also for like right. 20 years. And so right. we're, we're not saying like, okay, there's no contract, like whatever. It's like you, you and LP know what your deal is and you mm-hmm. are being compensated. Oh, absolutely. Yes. No question. And for us, it was just, it's, and it's a model that for us is, has evolved into run the jewels. You know, I, I am, we're so joined at the head that I'm his manager, but I also have his partner in the late, yep. you know, so every dollar that comes in, you know, everyone eats wherever it is, wherever it's coming from. Absolutely. And a different model than most, right? But it works for us. That's right. And, and, and that's what's really important. And it's fair to everyone. Yeah. And, and I assume uh, it's pretty transparent 
too. Oh yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, exactly, especially considering everything you've been through. Yep, and everything has to be on the table because when we, when our part, I forgot the painful part. I forgot to (laughs) mention when our label folded and we had this four hundred thousand dollars in liabilities to our artists slash friends. We had to make a hard decision. Right. The typical decision would be to walk away Mm -hmm. and just say, "Hey, sorry," you know. Right. We can't do that, but that was their money. Yeah. And those are our friends, you know, and they earn that money. Mm-hmm. And we had to make a very a painful decision and a really tough decision. And we spent almost three years paying them back. Wow. I mean, I would literally go do shows and then hand the check over. Incredible. And it sucked. Yeah. For us personally, but right. it's like we can never look them in the face again. Um, if we do this, you know, we got to make it right with them because we started our label on them because we got screwed over. Mm-hmm. And we like, we're like, we're never going to do that. And then we find ourselves in the position of potentially yep. doing just that. It's so important. I mean, I know and it sounds basic. It is important. But, yeah, it's, it's so important to do right by people, but also like just to see things through. 100 and to do by do right by yourself in your own code for sure you know and if one believes in karma you know i do and paying things forward and paying it back and all of that yep. i do too and you know good things will happen to you and for us it, it, it came back to us in the most incredible way um you know just brother jules has been a, a blessing on so many levels and uh collectively and individually and it never would have happened without those other things happening for sure so we we're grateful and we stumble but we also stumble into a lot of awesome <laughs> shit you know yeah. all the time like left right and center and that's part of it too right just being yep. in position um like my old football coach used to say luck is prep when preparation and opportunity cross paths you as an athlete you've probably heard that that's right um, and uh but ask us do we feel lucky today you know and i've carried that forward like always be prepared you know always keep the ball in play because Mm -hmm. if it's not in play you can't score that's right but if it's on the pitch or if it's on the field or if it's on the court i don't care where it is and that same coach used to always also say if you can touch the ball play football he'd say if you can touch it with one finger Theoretically, you could catch it. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. It's like that means some way you're gonna be able to. You could tip it to yourself, anything like. Exactly. That lesson stuck with me. Like if you can just touch it, there's a way you might be able to make it happen. And, yes. And we've been very lucky to, to do that sort of thing. I love it. Um, do you have time for five more questions? I know that's kind of a lot. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, you are amazing. Thank you. Um, so you co-manage, you know, one of the biggest groups in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but you also are managing a newer developing artist, Songhoi Blues. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about yeah, them. Yeah. How'd you Absolutely. find them? How's the approach different That's or right. not? It's been another, uh, just a beautiful experience for me as a music fan and as someone who has someone who's half West African, Nigerian, they're from Mali. Um, it's been personal too. Yeah. And it's also open, you know, I think that's my next venture is all 
creative people from the African diaspora, whether mm -hmm. it's the continent or the U.S. or Europe or the Caribbean. There's so much creativity coming from that diaspora. It's mind-blowing. Um, and sports, too, you know, Giannis right. and the list goes on in the NBA yeah. and the NFL, etc. Yep. Most of them are, are By the way, that's what, you know, I kept telling people like that's if people think the NBA is fixed, it's actually in Milwaukee's favor. I'm like the NBA wants to open up Africa. <laughs> They're on our yeah. side. If you're a Bucks fan. That's right. And uh, it's amazing to see in Africa is the youngest demographic on the planet. The median age of 19, 75% of the continent is under the age of 25. Wow. So it's also the next big international market for everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, so Songway Blues, you know, they were, they were brought to me by a couple of friends, Matt Sweeney, who's a pretty well-known musician, guitarist, and been in some really incredible indie bands like Chavez and Zwan, etc. Bonnie Prince Billy. Um, he also yeah. plays on all the run, run the Jewel, Jewels records, but I've known Matt for a long time, and um, he knew I was a fan of West African music. And then Matthew Johnson, who owns the label Fat Possum, who had signed the group, they came to me and said, we've got your next client. Oh, cool. And I said, you do? And they sent me the music, and I'm like, you absolutely, you're absolutely right. I love this band. <laughs> and then, then when I heard their story, blew my mind. They are actually... They were discovered by Damon Albarn of Blur. Damon Albarn's my senior quote. I'm obsessed with him. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's amazing. What a talent. Um, yep. He's doing his Africa Express stuff. Mm -hmm. So this band, they were actually not a band when they, uh, they were all in, in university. And in Mali, if, for those unfamiliar, which is probably most of the political situation there, there was a civil war in 2012. And the North, Timbuktu, where the guys were studying, and they didn't know each other, but they were all at school, um, was taken over and sh Sharia law was imposed. So they literally, and Western music was banned. So they literally woke up one day and the music that they loved to do was outlawed. Wow. So they all fled to the South, to Bamako, the capital. And that's where they met and formed a band. And, uh, and that's where Damon came upon them. And, you know, the Africa Express happened, and then uh, Julian Casablancas ended up signing them to his imprint on Atlantic, and Nick Zinner from the AAS produced the first album. Love it. <laughs> so it's one of those things, right? And then they had a second album. I wasn't involved yet, and things were going, but they had terrible management who stole from them uh. and signed them to terrible contracts. And... It was really heartbreaking, you know, because the same managers had done the same thing to a group called Amadou and Mariam, the blind African singers. Right. And they had signed a contract that they, in English, and they're blind. They only speak French, and you know, right. and their, their own languages from Mali. So it's the same same crew screwed these guys over. So they were in like insane amount of debt when mm -hmm. I'm like, oh great. But I met them, and I'm like, these guys are, I, I love these guys. These are good people. These are amazingly talented people. The lead guitarist was, many guitarists consider him one of the best young players in the world. Um, he's a fake guitarist. Come to their shows just to watch him play. Like, he is something else. And so I really, I connected with these guys, and it's been a, and I got them out of debt, and we released a good album, and it's, you know, then pandemic like everyone else 
and slow them down, but they've got a very bright future and I'm very excited about the creative step forward they're about to take. Um, Because now they're fully in control of their own vision for the first time. Right. And that's Uh, exciting. And they honestly were one of my favorite performances at iVoted Festival. So thank you for submitting them. Of course, of course, of course. And we're making a film, hopefully knock on wood, there's an American guy in Mali, actually, um, named Paul Chandler, who runs a, a, an org called Instruments for Africa, which is now funded by the U.S. State Department. And his mission is to help uh, empower Malian cultural initiatives. And as part of his journey, he would do festivals all over the country and stage them, help stage them and put on da-da-da-da and instruments and because the political situation became very difficult for them to travel by land because the jihadis, it was just a death wish, basically. So he came up with the idea of renting the 60-ton boat and sailing up the river Niger with all this gear. Wow. And it basically ended, ended up being a traveling festival, right? Yeah. Too, where there's this huge festival they do every year. And he's telling me about this because I met him through the band. I'm like, this is incredible. You do this? This is real? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, is, do you call it anything? Do you film it? And like, he had just been doing it as a matter of, of, of a way to, to get things up river. Right. And so we're now we're like, we're going to make a whole documentary about it. Oh, cool. And have the band go on that journey and tell their story, you know, wow. rediscover their own country. Because they've been on touring all over the world. They actually haven't spent a lot of time in Mali until the pandemic. Sure. And it's been a real, real, like, amazing experience. So, and, and in addition to that, so that's, that's, and that helped really bring me to the forefront for my next venture, which is all about Africa, as I mentioned, and I've met yeah. all of these, and, and I'm now working with some really exciting young artists like uh, Dap, uh, an artist named Dap the Contract, and another one named Ezekiel. Dap's based here, Ezekiel's in London. And Dap is one of those mind-blowingly talented first of all like just so talented in everything classically trained pianist he raps he sings he does all his visuals and he and his, his fiance and he's also a double ivy league grad and, and, a, and an ip attorney at one of the top firms in the wow. and he's young you yeah know. he's a unicorn yeah and, just uh, like you. He's, he's so creatively ambitious he's not someone who's worried about the industry He's worried about being making great stuff, right? You know, and 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 I, I really am inspired by that. And Ezekiel too. Ezekiel is a soul R and B singer, but pretty unique. Anyone who Prince gave the official cosign to, yes, you know, and Prince maybe being my favorite artist of all time. It's like, uh, wow. But he's a real artist as well. He's a visual artist. He's a poet. He does all these different things in addition to uh, being a singer. But he's, you know, recorded with Massive Attack and Gorillas and toured with all of them. He's a special, mm-hmm. special talent. So, and his time is, I think his time is now. So I'm really lucky to be working with him too. And there's so much talent in general. Yeah. That I'm looking forward to. And writers and actors and athletes stories mm-hmm. right there's so many new stories from the african diaspora that i think people will be blown away by yep you know because it'll be the first time they get to hear them and so many of us our parents left there 
in the 60s or the 70s, you know, whether it was war or the economy or whatever the case, and and they spread us all around the world. Uh, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so many are rising. And as I try to explain to people in the music business, we've always been here. Because <laughs> if you look at Seal, Nigerian. Yeah. Sade, Nigerian. Dizzy mm-hmm. Rascal, half Nigerian, I think half Ghanaian. I mean, the list goes on to The weekend, Tyler, the creator, Earl Sweatshirt. You know, there's so many examples that aren't obvious because they didn't grow up in Africa. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. And you've been and, alluding uh, to this, um, but do, is there anything else you want to share about Studio A? And the, no, no, the just studio? that. Oh, yeah. you know what? The only other thing that I would, that only because I'm really passionate about it and fascinated by it. I do not pretend to be an expert. I just know that this is a big part of the future and that's blockchain. Right. And all the applications and we're going to be one of the first, certainly in, in our world, the first companies to to officially launch with the blockchain vertical. More than a vertical, but a blockchain like a backbone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, Nigeria is one of the first countries to legalize crypto. That's right. So it's going to be an interesting uh, next couple of years for sure. But that's what makes it exciting, you know? Yes. Doing new things. And hopefully fair and equitable and transparent, Mm -hmm. you know, with with, um, 1,000%. 1,000% because Africa is on the verge of being looted again for its creative IP now. Right. Instead of just its natural resources and its athletes too. Yeah. And a lot of these people don't know, these young, especially these young, they don't know what's fair or what they're actually entitled to or what they right. can ask for. And you have middle people and middle men and middle women and scumbags yeah. and hustlers. It's like human trafficking. Yep. You know? And so we're trying to help solve. And now you have all the entertainment companies going in and buying up all these copyrights for nothing. Can can we just give my book out for free to everyone you come into contact there that's having these experiences? Because, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's real. And that's a big part of our mission is the education and edification and and just training of people in the African music business and scene and entertainment scene. So they have the skills and and they can build their own industry at home. Yes. And not have to export everything. Nigeria is one of the world's leading producers of oil, but for so long, and it produces, I mean, but actually refines very little of its own oil. It ships it else. It's crazy, you know? Yeah. And, or, uh, but or now, if you're going to export, know what you're export, you know, know what you're signing mm-hmm. up for, you know? If they, mm-hmm. So that is just incredible work that you are doing. Well, we're doing our best, and a lot of people are doing their thing, and, um, and everyone's, you know, everyone's got to try. And like a lot of places, it's generational. Yep. And there's an older, more corrupt generation that's, uh, that hopefully will be exiting the stage. Right. And like anything else, it's who fills the vacuum. Yeah. You know, and hopefully that'll be, it's America's not in a dissimilar position, different dynamics, right. da, 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 but it's still about that vacuum of leadership. Exactly. Um, so tell me about grainy pictures, which also yeah. sounds really inspiring, but again, brings it back to what you were doing at the beginning too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Grainy is really the love child of, uh, one of my best friends, Colin Gray, 
who, uh, I mean, he, he, he built it. He found, I got, he brought me into it. Um, he and his, 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 his sister, Megan Rainey Aarons, and, uh, they are a, an incredible duo and they've been doing a lot of great cause oriented work. And you're going to appreciate the first film that we ever did that made any noise and won some awards and stuff. That's, uh, it's called, uh, Freedom's Fury, and it was about the 1956 water polo match between the Soviet Union and the Hungarian Nationals. Love it. And uh, Mark, Mark Spitz was our, our narrator. Great. And um, and it told the story of this epic, because those are two of the great water polo dynasties, as you right. know. And as they were battling out this epic Olympic water polo match, you know, the Cold War, I mean, the Iron Curtain was being built outside, right. you know, and people, there were tanks rolling through the streets and there was fighting between, you know, the Soviets and the partisans. And, and that, that actually, it manifested in the pool where these guys were going at it and there was blood every day. I mean, they were really fighting it out. Right. And, um, and it's super intense, but we ended up re- reuniting all the, uh, living, uh, players from both sides oh wow they were there in the like 70s and 80s and so 80s and 90s maybe and it was beautiful it was amazing to see them get together and and and, and all the anger be gone yes and it only be talking about the positive memories they had exactly you know? and uh, so that's how grainy really got started and colin and the team have been doing great work in the documentary space as well as you know commercial space, branded content. We've been able to do a lot of fun stuff. Our last project, which debuts October 24th, my birthday, at the Newport Film Festival in California is Unzipped, which is about really uh, the, 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 the dual crises of, of homelessness and, uh, and you know, affordable housing and income inequality in, in, in L.A. with the focus on Venice, mm-hmm. where, where the company's based and Colin lives. And he was, you know, I was there visiting uh, a few years back and he was walking back from the pool where he swings a big swimmer like you. And um, he played water polo at U of M. And um, he's telling me about these incredible conversations that happen at the local pool between all these different people from all walks of life. Right. You know? And I'm like, the documentary, because we had a big idea to go all over America and talk about these issues. I'm like, maybe we just start here, man. You know, in your backyard. And, and, and that had snowballed into this amazing documentary that, you know, Mayor Garcetti found with us. A lot of interesting and significant people were willing to be a part of it. And it really tries to unpack and examine it through the, the stories of two families. Um, right. One, two, an artist, two artists that are living on the street raising their kids. And then another artist family that's living illegally in their workspace and gets evicted and trying to humanize it. And then the battle between the communities, between the bourgeoisie or the people who are gentrified Mm -hmm. and those who've been there. And uh, so we're really excited about that. And uh, Lucy has come on board and she came on board as an executive producer as well. Great. Colin and Lucy are also good friends. They go back to college, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so all these things have, and Run the Jewels has music in it. 
adapt the artist i was just talking about also has a song yeah i was gonna say i bet the music supervision is pretty sick on that yeah 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 so we get to you know work on uh, on on cool stuff like that and grainy we're working on another project about the border that megan has developed so you know i'm a film i love film that's why i got that's like like i said that's why that i thought i was going to do right and uh and now i get to uh still be involved and around the jewels our next project hopefully but working on is a movie starring that incredible so you know it'll really come totally. full circle if we're able to pull it off i love it so how do you balance all of this you know you're a parent you're a human being like how do you balance it how do you find a meet yeah, time? yeah it's 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 a good question you know um, you can ask my ex-girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> because I my kids are my priority. I'm a single dad. I'm actually a solo dad. They lost their mom a I'm few so years sorry. ago and, you know, they were with me before that anyway, but you know, it's really, it's just me and it's just been just me for, for several right. years. And that, that's all the motivation I really need. For sure. You know, with those two. That's why I'm here. To be their dad. That's why they've been on this earth. That's how I look mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, bl- I'm blessed. And, you know, I, they didn't ask to be here. So it's my job to do everything I can to, to provide for them and give them healthy lives. And, 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 and they're doing, you know, they, 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 they just blow me away with what they're able to accomplish. And so that is my priority. And work I love, the old saying, if you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and, but it takes a different, I'm not saying one is better than the other. And in fact, it takes a certain amount of crazy, crazy to do what I do or what you do. Like it's just delusional. I don't have children, let alone a, you know, I'm not, let alone being a single parent though. (laughs) But I truly do enjoy what I do. I'm lucky. I get to wake up and do some of the funnest things and they fall into my lap and things that happen and, but it wasn't necessarily fun in 2012 or whatever like in philadelphia right no no it sucked sucked. it sucked and uh but you just gotta keep believing and and i do believe in the artists i work with i believe in myself and uh and but a lot of it's luck too when i was down in the dumps you know an old friend of mine who was the finance guy you know i've been avoiding all my friends because i was embarrassed and all that good stuff and he finally tracks me down and he's pissed. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, what do you think friends are for? Um, and then he told me to go re- read two books. One was Dale Carnegie's, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I hadn't read since like high school. And I'm like, that's stupid. Why would I ever read that? <laughs> and, and in the meantime, he, I think he was running the arbitrage desk at one of the major yeah. banks in the world. Right. And he's like, I read that book. Like I go back to it every month. I'm like, you do? And he's MIT, Yale grad, you know, like top of the food chain. And I'm like, okay. And we met because he was a musician. He, he was a musician, but had carpal tunnel and couldn't play anymore and went into finance. But um, he's like, read them both. And the other was uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which if you have, oh. you don't read it if you feel it super optimistic about life because it tells the story of his journey as Holocaust survivor 
and takes you through that experience. And he was a psychologist, so he was he had he had skills that saved him because he's a quote unquote doctor, so he could play the role yeah. of doctor for the other inmates. Wow! But it's one of the most mind blowing stories I've ever read and experiences as, as a human right. being what they went through, what they what they actually were able to survive through, mm-hmm. and what they had to witness and come out on the other side. He ended up being a very successful psychologist in America. Um, but it's, it's interesting. And I, I, I will never feel sorry for myself. Right. After reading that book, I'm like, I'm yeah. good. It took a hell of a lot for me to feel sorry for myself well, after reading And that. even hearing the stories of these artists from Africa that are you know, fleeing wars sure. and moving gears on ferries. And I mean, it's just oh, yeah. a lot of things in perspective for the things we yeah, get yeah. It does. with here. It does. But I'll tell you, I will, you know, when I was, I, I was, I grew up that way because my dad was one of these people or one of these stories, you know, he was born in a mud hut in the Nigerian yeah. bush in a rural village and went off to Oxford to graduate top Incredible. of the like literally born on the dirt, the dirt floor, and showed me when I was a kid. That's where I was born. That piece of dirt, and, and it's like if I can do what I did, you can do whatever. Yeah. You, you know, so I already came into the game, you know, with that mentality of like it's not about any, where you come from at all. You know, it's about you know, like Prince said. I'm trying to quote him correctly. I got to quote him correctly. Be blasphemy. Um, I'm forgetting. I'm, I'm not gonna say it right, so, so don't. It's quote. okay. But it, it's it's really it's a paraphrase, and it's not about where uh, you've been. It's I love you that. You know, that's kind of what this book and podcast is all about. So thank right. you. Um, You're very one welcome. last question: uh, What does building a sustainable music career mean to you? Great question. And actually, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that is on the last quiz I just did in the class. <laughs> awesome. It's very similar, like like referring to you. Um, but it means, it depends on what you mean as a larger ecosystem industry or for an individual. I also, because I used to teach that class, um, I had the students present on what building a sustainable music career means to them. And one of my favorites was Jack Hansen, who actually works with me now. His was uh, mental health right. for artists in the industry. So there's there's no right uh, or wrong. It's, it's hugely <laughs> yeah. important, right? And that is that, that is a very important point. I talked to my class about that as well. Like that is something that has to be taken really yes. seriously. You know, it's a deep, deep, deeply important issue, and artists don't have any backstops. They don't have any soft landings. And I've had the misfortune of losing artists mm-hmm. mental illness um you know i lost my 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 wife my kid's mom to she was an artist to mental illness so it's real and if people aren't there for each other don't take that's what i tell my team i tell my students take care of each yeah. other look after each other have each other's backs you know because if you don't who the hell else is going yep you know yeah, and you gotta care about you gotta care about people yes and, uh, and, and, and it makes all of us better humans when we do that. So, but as far as what makes us stay, you know, it's for me, it's being able to do what you love to do successfully and, 
and 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 and, and live a decent life and take care of your family and have a yep. you know being able to have some sort of agency over your life and your future um i think but writ large it's got to be something that's equitable something that empowers creators and where the creators take prominence not just in terms of making the product but the the, the back end you know that they're able to to continue doing it because they make money doing yep. it you know it's such a savage business and when you really unpack it as you know it's deeply unfair i mean it is high risk and people have to understand that new artists are high risk at least 70 percent of all music revenue comes from catalog right everyone's scared of investing in yeah. new artists because the return is so low and the margins are so low so what that says to me that maybe we need to change the economic model where these giant corporations don't need to be stepping off like can't we do it in a different yeah. way right where you know there aren't there isn't as much people like pulling on yeah. the money right for whatever reasons and maybe we can maybe we can't but i think that uh it's got to be equitable, more yeah. equitable, and it's got to be something that economically is sustainable, and it's got to be something that creative because AI is coming. Yeah. AI songs are coming right. probably sooner than people realize, and the stuff I've heard is actually pretty good. Yeah, of course. And I hate to say no, that. Of course it is. I hate to say that. And in three, four, five years, it's going to be really, 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 really good. And if you're making like pop songs, you could be in trouble. Yeah. But if you're making art that because machines can't feel, they can't talk about hope or loss. They can't talk about you know real love or longing or you know those things, those sort of soft ethics and principles. Um, and that's where real artists thrive. That's their space. And so real art has a future in technology. But and now I'm regretting um, not mentioning this on a panel I was on this morning. Um, I don't know if you saw that. Uh, Chris Cornell's wife has been fighting um, for Soundgarden's label um, and, I, and probably Soundgarden, the band itself, to not be able to make deep fakes of his voice. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of Prince, it's like we've had all these artists educating us on owning your master recording rights, like understanding mm-hmm. what publishing is. And meanwhile, we have Britney mm-hmm. Spears locked up in a conservatorship and Chris Cornell's dead and someone can do you know, legally, it sounds like can do deep fakes of his voice. So even if you don't do pop, yeah. if you are, you know, quote, you know, what you're. That's it, right. So, yeah. Absolutely correct. And we all have to be mindful of all these things, understand what the repercussions yes. could be, what it really means. I mean, in all transparency, Brother Jules is about to do a, a video that involves that technology, but in a really different way. Right. And actually, a pretty well, they're alive. They're making way. those decisions right. themselves. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are, but the right when you see it, right, you'll understand what I'm talking about from a rights. It's a really cool thing that's happened that most people aren't aware of. And it's uh, um, it's very rare, and we have a rare opportunity, and that's why we're doing it um, because normally that technology is super creepy. Yes. You know, and and like most things you know they let the horse out of the, the barn before they realize how to ride it you know and, or figure out and it gets ugly but uh the society is going in a direction that music it's not about music like 
like these things are happening society wide. And if, if we all don't understand how to grapple with it, yeah, right, that, then it's going to get really ugly. Really, it's already ugly. Well, and also, you know, and it's just like thinking about a more equitable industry. Um, so I was on a panel this morning with the founder of Roster. Do you know them? Okay, yeah. so I didn't. And had you seen that study they've done on management companies? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't have it in front of me, but out of the top 1,000 management companies, I don't know if it's in, I think it was global, um, you know, 70% of the artists are male. And that also didn't um, incorporate bands and groups where they think that number would be higher. But then looking at the genre breakdown, it was like 10% hip hop. It's just like a lot of white genres have management, have this support, but a lot of people of color and women don't. So there's that. And then there's also just looking at the data of like what people are listening to. And it's not always what we're talking about in the industry, you know? That's that's absolutely correct. And those are really important points, I think, on both sides for both uh, people of color who are disenfranchised or don't have access, right? And then there's women. One of my students raised this point, and I've had friends who are female artists deal with this. I'm sure you know this well. Like, it's the men who are the problem. Like, they can't get anything done because men are always hitting them. <laughs> right. Or making it such, or, yeah. or, or in some way imposing maleness and toxically yeah. on every scenario. And it's very frustrating. It broke one of my friends' hearts. She stopped doing music because I guess she was cursed with being too attractive for men yeah. to deal with. And they couldn't look at it like a, like a professional, right. like a human. Mm-hmm. You know, everything has to have sexual overtones to it. Everything. You know? And that's, and as a father of two daughters, like, that's unacceptable to me. You know? Like, we can't, and it's us. It's not women. It's men who are the problem. And I'm not like, I love them. I love dudes, right? I think men are great. But we have to, we have to evolve. Hell yeah. And we have to understand our our, our role in the problem, which is significant, just like in racism, it's not people of color who need to evolve, you know, in, in terms of being racist, right, <laughs> or not being yeah. racist. It's, it's other people, you know, it's white people, and, and so on and so forth. The same with people who are homophobic. It's not people who are gay that need no. to evolve. It's people who are homophobes that need to evolve. Well, and maybe know? we can talk about this with your students next week when I come by, but, like... You know, you get hit on when you're young as a woman in the industry. I mean, I had I had a GM at Viacom, you know, stick his tongue down my throat when I was 20 years old at an internship. Like, so that happens. But then as you get older, this is what I experience now. I don't get hit on as much, but I don't get listened to. I don't get heard. And that's a really bizarre experience as well. So there's there's a lot going on there. Oh, God, it's so depressing. Like, we got to, like, set our game up all over the place. But, you know, I know as a young manager who represented white acts. Yeah. Right? I don't get walk in the room, and maybe they didn't know what I looked like because it's before, like, you know, well before Zoom. And, you know, maybe I don't sound obvious. Right. And they look me managing a white pop artist or a white rock yeah. band and be like, who are you? Why are you here? And it's like, they, even though I may have known just as much about, or more, about rock and roll than sure. them. You yeah. know, not in their wildest conceptions could, could this guy sitting in front of them 
have anything useful right. about this. How would I know? In their, in their minds, right? But it's the same thing as a black AR person. You can't sign right. white acts by and large. But you continue but to defy that. Can sign whoever yeah, they I want. Mean, yeah, you know, but white AR can sign whoever the hell they right. want. Right, exactly. And you. It, a, fr- a friend of mine. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. I was saying a friend of mine is a promoter. She's a white woman who's a promoter who was sharing a story with me in, in Detroit about black promoters she knows who are trying to book white acts who aren't Ruben. Right. And no one, no one oh my knew. gosh. Even if it's a city that's 80% right. black. You know? So these are the sort of structural right. institutional things that people don't pay attention to and they don't consider yes. these things. Right. And until there shifts there, so again, it's equity, more equity, yeah. more opportunity, not guaranteed outcomes, but guaranteed. That's right. Things. That's what's missing. And, and it's not about, you know, giving people favors. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's about just living up to the code of what this country is supposed to stand for. And, and we, it's a work in progress and we're a long way away as we see every day. And, uh, but we have to, each one of us has to do our, our little part, period. And you certainly are doing that, Amici. Well, we were trying, you know, I'm lucky to be able to do something, you know, and, and to be able to do this for a living, very blessed. And we work hard for it, right? And there's no one has our back. So you better work hard because the way, the way down is a hard one, and, you know, and the crash is a hard one. Yep. Um, that's why it's even more important that we, as, as a community, rally around each other. COVID is a great example of, of the necessity to do that, especially in live music, as you know, devastated. Yeah. You know, and um, and that's not over no. yet. No, it's not. So we just gotta we gotta look out for each other's best interests as much as we can, and not let corporate interests dominate every aspect of the conversation that's right well thank you again for your time today amici i appreciate it and you so much of course thank you for having me and uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you and uh, you yeah class. i can't wait oh, cool. awesome well that's a wrap for this episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams Thank you again to Amici for being my guest today and tune in next week, which I think is going to be the last episode of this series, but we may do some special ones. So until then, thank you again to Nathan Kane, my wonderful engineer, former NYU student, Matthew Wong for composing the music. And I'm at Mia Wizzle on Twitter and social media. Thanks again.